0: may be seated. As we just sang in the refrain of that hymn about the, comfort, uh, the, the comforting that Jesus brings to us, the joy that we have in him and in his coming. Well, joy is the theme of the third Sunday in Advent. And here's what I want to talk about today. We can't be robbed of joy, but we sure can lose it. Relationships are some of the greatest sources of joy in our lives. And I'm reminded of this when I think about the relationship I have with my grandchildren. Recently, I was sitting at my desk in my office and I was burdened by the task at hand and the cares of life. And then, ding, yes, ding. And I looked at my iPhone and there was a text message. And it was a picture of my two grandchildren. And as I looked at those two, the greatest grandchildren ever, As I looked at their photograph, I thought about the blessings of our relationship as Papa and grandchildren, and it's just amazing to me that, that the burden and the gloominess seemed to dissipate, and my day got a great deal brighter. And I was able to re engage the burdensome task, but yet with a whistle and with a skip, as it were, in my gait. Relationships are some of the greatest sources of joy in our lives, and they can literally in a moment turn. Our entire day around from a day of gloom to a day of bright, happy sunshine. If imperfect human relationships can be such a great source of joy, what about the greatest relationship that we have as Christians? The relationship that we have with Christ Jesus and his gospel, the greatest relationship that is the greatest source of joy, even lasting joy. We can't be robbed of joy, but we sure can lose it. The encouragement the Apostle uh, Peter gives believers in our passage uh, today is that you, the believer, can have joy even in the midst of the most severe trial. What changed my day? My focus was changed from the burdensome task and the concerns of life to the source of joy that my grandchildren are to me. What makes a difference in our lives today when we are burdened by the cares of life and the trials? This is what Peter is saying to the original hearers of his letter. What makes a difference, a change of focus from the various trials that the believer faces to the greatest source of joy, the relationship a believer has with Jesus and his gospel. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we read verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. God's word for God's people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The, Lord of the, word, uh, the word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect reviving the soul. And may God's word revive our souls today. Let us pray. Father, we are facing trials today, some great, some small various trials, and in the midst of that, you're working, you're bringing your will about, and show us today that you ordain trials, you have a purpose for them, and in the midst of them, today, we have joy. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, our theme today, three points today, very, very simple. God plans trials. The trials that God plans, He has a purpose for them to strengthen our faith, to show that it's genuine, to refine us, to temper us, to perfect us, that we would more believe in Jesus. And as we believe in Jesus, we will have joy today and for the rest of eternity. So those are the three things that we'll look at today. First, the plan for trials. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again just because it fits the text. When my youngest child, Megan, was a little girl, she was out swinging on our swing in the backyard. And as I did when I was a kid, probably, I'm not gonna do it now because I may have my other wing in a sling. But as most kids do, as you're swinging up, you jump out and you plant on the ground. What does the swing do? The swing goes back and then it comes forward. And so that's what happened to Megan. She jumped out, the swing went back, and the swing came forward and hit her right in the head. And this is what she asked, this is what she said. Why did God plan that? Well, at 61 years old, I'm still asking that question. Why did God plan that? I continue to be puzzled over God's plan. Why he would ordain X when I would surely want Y. But yet, in asking that question... Why did God plan that? There's a wonderful affirmation of a basic truth about God that he is sovereign and that everything that we experience is ordained by him for his glory and for our good. And so in verse 6, we learn something about God's plan for trials in our lives. And the first thing we learn is that trials are inevitable. Romans 5, 35, Hebrews 10, 32 through 36, and James 1, 2 are just three passages that show us trials are inevitable. James 1 and verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James did not say, if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet them. Our Lord himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verses 11 through 12, also in Luke 6, 22, affirms trials are part of God's plan for our lives. And in our text today, Peter, verse 6, you have been grieved, brothers, by what? various trials. Now the original recipients of Peter's letter are called, in verse 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And so obviously Peter is writing to those brothers who have been dispersed, who are scattered about primarily due to persecution and other Reasons, you know, God's people in Peter's day that are in various places that are experiencing difficulty. But I think we would make a huge mistake if we just simply restrict that label, "elect exiles" only to the original hearers of this letter, because I'm an ex- elect exile. You are elect exiles. Like the original hearers in Peter's day, even those who were still in Jerusalem, who maybe lived next door uh, to Peter, were elect exiles. In that, we are journeying as believers, as we studied in Pilgrim's Progress, through a land that is not our home. And as we are journeying through this land that is not our home, God has planned trials for us. We'll get to the purpose in just a moment. And what are some of those trials that we face? And we need to acknowledge that some of the trials that we face are planned by God, but part of God's plan is that they're by our own doing, right? We can bring all kinds of grief upon ourselves. And so some of the trials that God's people face? Persecution, struggle with sin, spiritual dryness, complacency, conflict, suffering the consequences of a fallen world, sickness. I mean, think of all of the various trials that we face. And so in verse 6, when Peter says, you, you means the original recipients of this letter but you means you and me Peter is writing to us all and think of the storyline of our lives if we were to each stand up and give us an synopsis of of our life up to this point would we not all have various trials to talk about secondly trials are lifelong good news Have joy, right? Peter says, now for a little while. Well, man, it doesn't seem like a little while, does it? Sometimes it feels like the the difficulty goes on and on and on. Verse 6, now for a little while. But we really should take this now for a little while, really, to indicate the entire time frame of our earthly existence, our life's journey. And when we finally inherit eternal life and get to heaven, we will look back on our life's journey, and it will seem, in light of eternity, just a little while. Paul in 2 Corinthians four seventeen says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think we get a sense of, now for a little while, that in, in In the scheme of eternity, our life's existence will be a very brief moment, even a a vapor that comes and goes, mist or fog that comes and goes. Think about the storyline of your life's journey. Not only will we all be able to to detail the various trials that we have already faced, but there are various trials yet to come as we journey on this earth to our heavenly home. We should expect difficulty in this life. And third, trials are planned. Now in verse 6, Peter says, if necessary. That's how the translation in the ESV goes. But we should understand that as not, if necessary, that trials are optional, but really Peter indicating that trials are a necessary part of God's plan. Trials are not good. Trials are not enjoyable. Trials are often sad, they're unpleasant, but they're necessary for the Christian. Later. Peter will say this in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer. That includes us all. So let me paraphrase verse 6. This may go something like this. Now in this earthly life, it is necessary for you and me to be grieved to face various trials, for God has ordained them to be part of our story that he is writing as we journey to heaven. Trials are part of the portrait that he is painting that depicts our lives. We can't be robbed of joy but it can be lost when we deny God's sovereignty in planning trials in the lives of his people. Now, secondly, the purpose of trials. Well, you know, Meg's response to getting hit in the head by the swing, why did God plan that, affirms something else about God. Why? God has a purpose for trials. hi Dan. Dan Budkowski made this. The only problem with it, Dan, is that it doesn't have coffee in it. I could use a cup right now. A potter takes a lump of clay and he plops it on his wheel and round and round and round it goes and the potter fashions Something beautiful, a coffee mug. But if the potter simply sets that coffee mug off to the side and doesn't do anything else with it, that green piece of a coffee mug is useless. What makes it useful is that the potter takes that green Coffee mug, that green piece of clay, and puts it in a kiln and heats it up to over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. He fires that clay mug that is useless, but after the firing, it becomes pottery, porcelain, something. That is useful. In verse 7, the purpose of trials, Peter tells us, is to test to prove our faith is genuine, to expose us to heat, high heat, to make our faith strong and genuine and useful. To temper us like a metallurgist who heats up and pounds out and heats up and folds and pounds out metal to make it strong. Like a refiner who takes gold and puts it in the crucible to heat it up, to refine it in order to purify it. We have an example of God's purpose for trials in Genesis 22 as Abraham was commanded by God to go and offer his son as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed and God provided a substitute, beautiful, beautiful picture of what what we benefit from in Christ Jesus, God providing a substitute for us on the cross. But Abraham's faith was proven. We, we see in Isaiah 48.10, God tests, God tempers, God refines us. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Peter's point in verse 7 when he writes, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, is not to be understood that faith is precious. Now, faith is precious, but that's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter is calling precious is God's testing our faith, that is precious. The kiln is precious. The fire of affliction is precious. If I understand what Peter is saying, if I understand who God is, that he's sovereign to plan trials, that he's sovereign to use trials to make our faith useful, to strengthen us, to sanctify us, then I would have to say that that these trials are precious tools in God's hands. A financial hardship is precious. A loss of a loved one is precious. A sickness is precious. A struggle with sin, even, is precious. Each trial is a precious tool in God's hand to test, to prove the genuineness of our faith, to refine us, to temper us, to make our faith strong and resilient. Why is God so focused on planning trials in our lives for the purpose of refining us? Well, there's an answer to it. Look at verse 5. Who, that is the believer, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, our hope of possessing the promised inheritance in heaven, what Peter is saying here, is that God is making our faith strong to protect that. God is making our faith strong to sustain us, to persevere us, that we will be able to claim that inheritance. And God is so determined that our faith would be proven genuine, that it would be strong and steady, that he brings the precious tools of trials to refine us and to strengthen our faith. And the other part of the answer to the question, why is God so focused on refining us, is what Peter says in verse 7 in reference to Christ's second coming. God testing our faith, God refining us that we would receive that reward when the Lord Jesus comes, the second coming, when we go to meet him. God's plan for trials is for a purpose. A testing and proving of faith as genuine, to refine us, to temper us, to put us in the kiln of affliction, and to turn up the heat, to make our faith strong and useful, so that we will possess the inheritance of Christ in heaven. We can't be robbed of joy, but we can sure lose it when we rebel against God's purpose for trials. And lastly today, the presence of joy. How then are we able, in the light of facing trials, um, how should we live uh, today? Well, in 2017, a, a harris poll reported that 33% of Americans, the Americans that were surveyed, were happy. Just 33%. Supposedly, this represents the country. I wonder what this Harris poll would indicate if it was given here, right now, amongst us. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the result would be 33% of us would be happy. Call me pessimistic. (laughs) But I think probably this statistic would hold. Why? Because we live in a very unkind world. We face all kinds of things that, quote, rob us of happiness in our day. But Peter's point is to show that if our focus is on the things of this world, we will lose joy. But now, if we took a poll, so if we really buy into what Peter is saying here, if we really have our focus on Jesus and his gospel, if we believe on him, Even in the midst of the greatest trial, if we had the same survey that measured the joy, I would say it'd be 100%. That's what Peter's telling us here. That the gospel offers 100% joy for those who are in Jesus Christ and who focus on him and put their faith and trust in his gospel, even in the midst of the greatest trial. Peter says in verse 6, In this you rejoice. And I think that little phrase, In this you rejoice, is the key to the entire passage. Like a ship that is anchored securely in the ocean can withstand the greatest storm, so the believer who has his or her focus on Christ, who believes the gospel, who, whose faith is strengthened by the refiner's fire, will be anchored in Christ, in that gospel, safe and steady and joyful. Well, what is the, the this that Peter refers to in verse 6? In this you rejoice. Well, in verses 3 through 5, is clearly Christ and his gospel. Salvation, the glorious ending of salvation, the inheritance that we have that is, that is kept safe and secure by God. that that inheritance that will be the possession of every single individual that is born again, says Peter, through God and Christ's redeeming work. All who have a relationship with him and his gospel. And Peter shows that knowing about and focusing on the saving relationship that Christ has with us enables us to have joy today. It should result in 100% joy today. Joy that is in the presence, even in the face of trials. And we see Peter's focus on the present day focus of joy in verse 8 when he uses parallel statements here. Let me just summarize this. The parallelism shows that the believer's love for Jesus is a present reality Though Jesus is absent, and the parallel is, so their joy is a present reality, though they have never seen Jesus. And Peter says that this joy that we have today because of Jesus and his gospel and our relationship with him is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, verse 8. And the reason this joy is inexpressible and filled with glory is because it does not have a human source. It is sourced in the divine. As such, this joy is one with confidence and surety, even in the midst of trials. One commentator said this, It is thus this present joy lit up by the light of eternity, And allows the Christian to be sure of the future salvation with its attendant glory despite the present circumstances, those present circumstances that militate against such confidence. You see, when our joy is in the Lord, we are filled with confidence in him even in the midst of the difficulties of life. And this confidence is shown in verse 9 that the outcome of a future salvation is guaranteed to those who suffer through God's school of affliction, God's kiln of affliction. Surely the only response to such a Jesus and to such a gospel, to such an inheritance, to such a guarantee is joy. And what this means is that true joy is not rooted in circumstances, but in a relationship. See, relationships really are the source of joy in our lives. And the greatest relationship, Jesus and his gospel, is the source of the greatest joy, the only source of lasting joy. Joy transcends circumstances because it's sourced in Jesus and his gospel. Tom read from Isaiah 35. I'll just simply repeat verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee. It is that joy that is ours today, 100%. We can't be robbed of joy, but we can sure lose it when we focus on the trials and not on Jesus. One of my favorite Christmas gifts of my youth was a set of Jack Nicklaus golf clubs. I just remember opening or they were not wrapped, they were too big, but but On Christmas morning, seeing those golf clubs, I had so much joy. I went to bed that night, dreaming of one day walking up to the 18th green, the gallery going wild, applauding, as I walk up to sink that tournament winning putt. Joy of the future those very same golf clubs that brought so much joy Christmas Day and Christmas Night, brought such frustration the first time I used them on the golf course. (laughs) One reason I don't play golf as much as I would probably like to today is that I don't need to be sanctified. any. any, I don't need any more things to sanctify me. (laughs) The relationships that bring so much joy to us today, can also be the source of the greatest heartache because of brokenness. Things, earthly relationships, circumstances may promise joy and happiness, but they're imperfect and largely can never bring about the expectation of joy. Likely, each one of us here today is facing some kind of trial. My trial is rather evident. I don't know exactly the trials uh, that you're facing, but I, I would actually be flabbergasted, shocked, if there were some of you here today that had no trials at all, no concerns at all in your life. And Peter tells us that whatever that trial is, whatever that concern is, whatever is weighing you down today, maybe right now, is a precious tool planned by God. A precious tool that is in his hand to make your and my faith stronger stronger and more useful. Peter encourages us to turn our focus on the only source of supernatural and lasting joy, Jesus and his gospel, and believe on him and his gospel, and find that indeed Jesus and his gospel is the anchor that holds, that holds us steady, that holds us fast, that holds us safe and secure in the greatest storm It will never fail. And when we focus on him and we are held secure by him and though the trial may seem to overwhelm but because of Jesus and our trust in him we know it will not overwhelm us. We will experience joy. We can't be robbed of joy because we can't be robbed of Christ. We can't be robbed of joy, but we can sure lose it. When we no longer affirm God is sovereign in bringing trials, when we rebel against his purpose for trials, to do something incredible, to bring up the heat to refine us and to make us useful. And we can sure lose joy when our focus is on the trial and not on Jesus and his gospel. This Advent Christmas season, may we be joyful by affirming God is sovereign in bringing whatever that trial is you're struggling with today that we would rest in God's purpose for that trial to bring about a mighty work of grace to strengthen our faith, that we would possess that inheritance that is guaranteed, and that we would keep our focus, our gaze on Jesus and his glorious gospel, that we would believe on him. That's what I'm calling you to do That's what I'm calling myself to do. That's what Peter is calling us to do. Believe on Jesus and there find joy. Believe on Jesus and focus on Him and there learn what Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Focus on Jesus and believe on Him and be reminded of what Peter has already said that joy is of the Lord is inexpressible and filled with glory. May we be joyful. We can never be robbed of joy. We can never be robbed of Christ, but we can sure lose it if we fail to focus on him and his gospel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you've you've really made us for joy. And I pray that you would so work in us that as we struggle, and there may be some here today struggling with some very significant things, and yet, Lord, your word is faithful and true that you've planned it, that you're using it to refine that person in the kiln of affliction, to strengthen that faith that they would possess the inheritance And I pray, Father, for all of us in the midst of the trials we face, that our focus would be on Jesus and his gospel. We pray and thank you, Lord, for your glorious gospel. We pray and thank you for the greatest relationship that is the greatest source of supernatural and lasting joy, Jesus and his gospel. Anchor us more, I pray in it. In Jesus' name, amen.